0: Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. Fired for not getting vaccinated should you get EI. Canada says non-essential travel is now okay. Ontario lifts capacity limits, but the CFIB isn't popping champagne just yet. Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca wants the province to use ranked ballots in provincial elections. We investigate the supply chain woes in this country and talk about PTSD among healthcare professionals in Canada. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. This
1: is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Interesting comments from Employment Minister Carla Qualtrough a couple of days ago, who says it's unlikely or it's likely that people who lose their jobs for not complying with employer covid-19 vaccine policies will not be eligible for employment insurance quote it's a condition of employment that hasn't been met and the employer choosing to terminate someone for that reason would make that person ineligible for ei and she said quote i can tell you that's the advice i'm getting and that's the advice i'll move forward with interesting stuff Fiona Martin is an employment lawyer with Sanfuro Tubarkin LLP and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Fiona. How are you today?
2: Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me today.
0: Thanks for joining us on a Monday morning. Your thoughts on the minister's comments?
2: Yeah, I mean, the minister's comments are are definitely interesting. It is a government program. So ultimately, the government is entitled to, to roll out the benefit program in the way that it Wants to, but of course, this decision will, of course, have significant impacts for those who refuse to get vaccinated. Generally speaking, the only time an employee is not entitled to collect EI is if um, one, they resign from the company, or two, they're terminated for what's known as just cause. Now, in the context of vaccinations, unless there is a government mandate in place, either at the provincial or the federal level, um, that specifically requires an employee to get vaccinated, it's unlikely that their term, it wouldn't, it's very unlikely that that termination would amount to a just cause for dismissal. So for the government, or for the minister to now say um, that employees May not be entitled to EI regardless of whether or not it's a just cause or a without um, cause termination is is certainly going to have significant financial repercussions, right? Because the purpose of EI is to serve as as a safety net for for those who lose their employment and to to now prevent them from collecting EI for for a personal decision. Is con is concerning, right? Because we're politicizing now a, a social benefit.
0: The question is, and you brought it up uh, the the just cause is is not getting the vaccine. Just cause for termination are these employees being dismissed as a result of their own misconduct? Can this be considered misconduct?
2: Yes, yeah, so that's that's a very good question. It's a mistake that a lot of employers are making. At the end of the day, an employer has the right to choose to terminate an employee for whatever reason they want, as long as they are paid severance pay, right? And so in a, in a vast majority of these circumstances, there is no provincial or federal mandate requiring employees to get vaccinated. So in a vast majority of these cases, an employee, yes, they can be terminated, but they'll be entitled to severance, right? So although a lot of um, employers right now are choosing to terminate their employees for just cause, I mean, we're still quite early on and and there's yet to be case law released, but it's it's very, very unlikely that these terminations will, in fact, amount to just cause in the eyes of a court.
0: Fiona Martin is our guest, employment lawyer Sam Firuzumark in LLP. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Do you expect a rush of uh, EI complaints over this issue?
2: I'm sure there will be. We've seen it in the last, um, I mean, throughout the pandemic, there have been a number of VI of claims. I'm sure there will be a number, like there's a deadline approaching for many companies in October and November saying that if you don't get terminated, uh, sorry, if you don't get vaccinated by a specific date, um, you will be terminated. I'm sure we're going to see Uh, Number of EI applications submitted over the next couple of weeks and the next couple of months. Um, If they are refused EI, I'm sure that um, there will be legal challenges, court challenges to these decisions to deny um, those who refuse to get vaccinated EI, um, and we'll have to see how the courts will rule on this. on the decision um, by the government to refuse these these individuals, EI.
0: So if they're ineligible for EI, they're probably ineligible for severance as well. Does that go hand in hand?
2: Um, not necessarily. Like, I think off the bat, sure. Um, I think an employee who's saying, an employer that's saying they're not entitled to, um, like if the government's saying they're not entitled to EI, I think we could see more employers trying to argue that they're not owed severance, but like I said, unless there is a, a, um, a federal or provincial mandate in place, it's very unlikely that they're going to be like that'll hold up in court. So, yeah, we, we could see a delay in, in these individuals receiving severance pay because the employer at the time of termination will likely take the position that they're not owed um, owed severance pay. But is that a correct legal stance? Likely not.
0: For those who are terminated because of their vaccination status or refusing to get vaccinated, um, what kind of recourse do they have? Uh,
2: The recourse, I mean, is to, if you are terminated as a result of not getting vaccinated, we would strongly encourage that you contact, um, of course, an employment lawyer, um, like our firm, will be able to evaluate whether or not, one, there is, Um, a vaccine mandate in place at at the provincial federal level, and then we'll we'll be able to hopefully negotiate some sort of severance package for you. Because in the vast majority of these cases, employers are, are just unilaterally, a lot of employers are unilaterally taking the position, we don't owe our employees severance, which will likely not hold up in court.
0: Interesting discussion, Fiona. Thanks for the time today.
2: Not a problem. Thanks so much for having me this morning,
0: Rick. Have a great one. Fiona Martin is an employment lawyer at Semfiro Tamarkin LLP talking to us about uh, the employment minister's comments. Carla Qualtrough saying that, uh, listen, people who lose their jobs for not complying with COVID-19 vaccine mandates at the workplace will not be eligible for EI. Wow. Well, we'll see how this plays out. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people in this boat who have refused the vaccine, who have been terminated, and now are contacting people like Fiona to uh, to get the money they feel they are owed.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: The Canadian government quietly lifting its advisory against non-essential international travel on Friday, and marked the first time since March 2020 that the notice has been lifted. A travel notice on the Government of Canada website now advises travelers against all non-essential travel uh, internationally, but is now replaced with a notice urging all travelers to be fully vaccinated before a trip. Uh, Here joining us on Good Morning Hamilton is the president of TripCentral.ca, Richard Vanderloop. Richard, good morning. How are you today? Good
3: morning. I'm well. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for coming on. So now that this travel advisory has been tweaked on the Canadian government website, are we expecting the floodgates to suddenly open and travelers to be booking their uh, vacation destinations?
3: Well, when you're starting with the trickle, I guess when this opens, it is a bit of a floodgate. But compared, <laughs> compared to normal, it's still quite a ways from where it was. But there's no doubt that we saw some pickup in activity in um, amongst all the other work we've been doing related to schedule changes and still trying to get the last of people's refunds and what have you. So it's been a bit crazy, no question.
0: I can imagine the um, uh, absence of activity over the last number of months as people are staying home, not even considering international travel, going to a sunny south destination or over in Europe or an African safari. Uh, Given all that, and now that uh, we're able to do so a little bit more freely, are there great deals and incentives in place from airlines, tourist destinations like TripCentral.ca?
3: Well, in particularly that there was like back in the summer, Right, like um, before, all this was really kicking up. Um, we were doing a lot more activity of booking winter vacations, and people were doing this with uh, you know $100 down, $200 down kind of thing. And and at at this time, we sort of have about a normal amount of our final payments coming through, um, which is remarkable. Um, but. But now you know, there was a bit of a lull there with the, with the election and the Delta variant. So we saw prices dropping again, and now we're starting to see you know, a bit of a resurgence. So just like the stock market, travel prices are you know, rolling up and down with supply and demand. And the one big thing that people have to keep in mind, especially for winter sun vacations, is that there's a fixed supply of resorts in the Caribbean um and, and around and, and, as a matter of fact and there's a global demand right and canada is is one of the last countries to remove this travel advisory so um we we could expect to see rising prices but it's unpredictable because in the short term uh there still is some volatility for departures leaving you know sort of now
0: what advice do you have for travelers those who are vaccinated and those who are not vaccinated
3: Real, first thing, very simple, check your passport expiry because the passport offices were closed for a long time. Um, they've reopened. There's going to be a flood of that. So if, if you're expired, you got to get on that right away. Um, it's taking longer than their normal standards to get that done. Um, but in, in terms of planning, um, it takes a lot longer than it used to. A lot of people in the past were cavalier about uh, terms and conditions and cancellation and change conditions and they didn't really even have the patience to listen to us try to begin to explain that. Um, now this is really important and there are many options other than the absolute lowest fare with no ability to make changes. Small increases in price can allow some flexibility and I think that's important at this time.
0: Um, how does travel insurance uh, come into this? Because uh, can you be insured in terms of a COVID outbreak wherever you're going?
3: Yeah. So the insurance that we're selling um, is uh, is now now because the level three advisory has been lifted, it is no longer you know sort of a pre existing condition to any new policies that we issue today, which means that you know if somebody did in the in the outside chance contract something or have something to do with COVID-19 while down in destination, the insurance policy would now cover it for medical reasons. They're still not extending it for cancellation reasons because of the volatility that's going on. But again, there's other alternatives like uh, most suppliers have, you know, a, a waiver you can buy for a small amount of money. Sometimes it's 50 bucks. Sometimes it's a hundred dollars. Sometimes it's given away free with a promotion and that allows ability to change for a small fee or, you know, um, rebook at a different date by keeping it a credit. It's not the same as insurance, but the combination of the waiver plus the insurance uh, gives a lot of uh, comfort to people, I think, that they're not stuck with what is their non-refundable no-changes.
0: Richard Vanderloob is our guest. He is the president of TripCentral.ca. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. My name's Rick Samprin. One of the things that uh, I think people like um, about dealing with places like TripCentral.ca is that one-stop shopping. You you take care of everything. Does that include COVID-19 testing? Because if I want to go somewhere, the last thing I want to do is book a test here or book a test there. I want everything taken care of. Do you and do other travel agencies take care of these sort of things?
3: Well, one of the things we're trying to keep simple is there. There are still some places where you have to get a pre-departure test to go to that destination. In other words, you got to go to, you know, Shoppers or Rexall here and and get a get a test and and have proof of that before you leave. And there's a lot of places that you don't need it. So we're trying to keep a simple list of what are the requirements for people to get into these countries. Everybody returning to Canada so far, this is the last sort of restriction, is that you need to get a PCR or a lab test within 72 hours of returning to Canada. And, you know, it's beyond our ability to get that arranged in a local destination. But luckily, with our packages and, and some of our suppliers, that this is being offered right at the hotel. Now, there is an additional charge for it, but it, it is at least made, you don't have to scramble and try to find this on your own. It's sort of there. Um, And it ranges for like a destination like Cuba, which is being subsidized by the government, maybe 30 or 35 U.S. to get the PCR test. And in some destinations, it's more like about 200 U.S. So I think, you know, this is the last thing we're hoping that the government eventually, um, you know, relaxes a bit, and maybe moves to a cheaper antigen test that can be followed by PCR if it's positive. But it's, it's, a, it's kind of an expensive test to come home, and that's, that's the one last restriction we really have.
0: Um, the cruise lines, I mentioned airlines earlier, cruise lines also battered by the pandemic. How have they reacted to the new reality, and is, is, it, uh, is it safe to go on a cruise?
3: Well, um, we, we think so, and so of the cruise lines, but Canada has still got a Level 3 advisory uh, against all, all cruises, so they're saying to Canadians, avoid cruising anywhere uh not just sort of the cruise ships touching you know bc on their way to alaska so um there's still a level three travel advisory against cruise of course there's no date on that and what we're doing a lot with cruises right now is still sorting out the mess from 2020 so in in march of 2020 we had about one-sixth of our normal year that canceled and these people had credits and they had you know, plans arranged. So a lot of what we're doing now is just rebooking things now for the second and third time into you know later 2022. So I think people are are booking cruises with the expectation things will get better. Um, the other thing about cruises is is the deposits usually refundable up till the final payment. So a lot of people are booking cruises on a refundable basis, um, hoping that you know the travel advisory will drop. However. Even though the travel advisory is there, now that you can fly into the U.S. and the cruise ships are accepting mixed vaccine doses and whatever, everything, there's really no barrier. It's just that we still have that government advisory, and it's advising against booking cruises. So that's kind of hurting the cruise business in Canada.
0: Without well, no question. Uh, Richard, really appreciate the time today. Enjoy the rest of your week. All right, thanks for having me. Richard Vanderloo, president of TripCentral.ca. You're
1: listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is a cautious plan. It slowly lifts public health measures over time, allowing us to monitor any impacts on our hospitals and in our communities. It provides Ontarians and businesses with the certainty they need to make the plans of their own. It will do everything possible to avoid broad lockdowns, while enabling a tailored and localized response
0: should we need to act. That is the voice of Ontario Premier Doug Ford, explaining Ontario's easing of COVID-19 restrictions today by ending capacity limits in places like restaurants, bars, gyms, casinos, and indoor meeting and event spaces. Welcome back. This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900CHML. My name's Rick Sanford. Yes, we're chatting about capacity limits finally being relaxed here in Ontario, at least the next step of this pandemic recovery process. Julie Kwasinski is the Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Julie.
4: Good morning, Rick. Happy Monday to you, although uh, it's a rainy one. Is it raining in Hamilton too?
0: It's raining in Hamilton. Yeah, it's one of those uh, gloomy gray kind of fall days, but that's okay.
4: All right. <laughs> We're ready to rock on capacity restrictions, that's yeah. for sure.
0: Are you are you popping the champagne today?
4: Well, I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. After 4 weeks, or I should say after 14 days, 2 weeks of waiting, we are encouraged and relieved to hear that the ontario government has lifted the remaining capacity restrictions on the businesses that you mentioned like restaurants gyms bowling alleys dance studios and you're right to meeting and event spaces so that happened effective this morning as of 1201 a.m it's a crucial first step towards their economic recovery And it does level the playing field because we all remember the outrage from these businesses when two weeks ago, so now it's two weeks plus three days uh, ago, when sporting venues were told, like Scotiabank Arena, that they could fill to 100% 100 capacity without any physical distancing requirements while these other businesses had different rules. They still had their capacity restrictions in place. Yet... They were both, with health and safety protocols that were very strict, and both categories of these businesses did have to check for vaccine credentials.
0: It's almost as if the province did this kind of backwards.
4: Yes, it's interesting that you say that. We have heard from some members saying, why couldn't we have gone first as small businesses? and then the big businesses go next. And this brings us back, unfortunately, Rick, this was like a bad sequel to that movie from last fall, when I'm sure you remember when big box stores were told by the Ontario government that they could sell everything to anyone in-store, while the small retailers were essentially relegated to the crumbs of curbside pickup and delivery it's the same thing business are saying what did i do wrong why couldn't i have gone first they feel again it's the same thing unfairness and punishment like it's a it's a punitive measure and they still unfortunately we don't have a clear credible reason as to why this happened That question has not been answered to the satisfaction of our members.
0: So now that capacity limits are uh, 100% in places like restaurants and bars and gyms, do you anticipate any reluctance from consumers to visit these places, or are we just pining to return to places like restaurants?
4: Great question, Rick. We are still hearing from our members about a lack of consumer confidence, that people, after months and months and months of being told, to basically stay at home and you kind of develop a fear of going outside and then you start to get used to things that you can do online and you realize, hey, I really don't have to go outside to get anything. That there are other ways to get all the things that i need so yes we are absolutely concerned about consumer confidence and we're hoping now the ontario government i think any everyone will agree when you're looking at our vaccination rates the ontario government has pushed and pushed and pushed through all channels available publicly to tell people to get their double vaccination. So now's a good opportunity going into the holiday shopping season for the Ontario government to start advertising to get consumer confidence levels up and maybe even doing little things like going into MPPs, going into their local stores and taking pictures, posting them on social media. Hey, it's okay, I'm doing it, you should come out too, that sort of thing.
0: Proof of vaccination limits are going to start to be lifted by January 17th. There are other benchmarks that are going to be hit uh, once we get to that date. Are our members excited? Are they planning for this change?
4: Well, I think right now, Rick, it's so hard to look ahead to those January and March dates. where Because January 17th, that first group of businesses like restaurants and gyms and bowling alleys, if case counts stay low and we don't have any COVID issues the idea there would be to remove on by January 17th the requirement to check vaccine credentials businesses are just they've been told so many times about certain things happening and the timeline has changed so they're not looking That far ahead, they're looking to the present, knowing that today they'll be allowed 100% capacity, but they're also calling out to us for more help. It's really important for governments to understand and know that just because you allow a business to operate at 100% 100 capacity, that you've closed for months and months and months. You can't just snap your fingers, give them 100%, 100% capacity, and expect that they're not going to need any more help. They need some more provincial funding, not just the federal funding that we've been hearing about, and also funding to help them manage this vaccine credentials program if it does indeed continue on until the end of January or possibly later.
0: We shall see. Julie, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us.
4: No worries, Rick. Always a pleasure. You have a great day and stay dry.
0: Thanks, you too. Jilly Kwasinski is the Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Uh, March 28th is, I think, the date that most people are circling for a couple of reasons. Uh, remaining proof of vaccination requirements may be lifted in uh, the rest of the settings, which include meeting and event spaces, concerts and cinemas. And the mask mandates may also be Uh, be removed on March 28th. That is certainly a date that a lot of people are circling on their calendars as we get one step closer to our new normal. You're
1: listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca telling his party's annual general meeting that uh, he pledges to introduce a ranked ballot system should the party win the 2022 provincial election. And Mr. Del Duca joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Stephen. How are you? I'm
5: great. Thanks so much for having me back on.
0: How was the AGM over the weekend? Uh, it was fantastic.
5: It was it was virtual. Uh, still, uh, we're not we're not ready as a party to come back in person just yet. Um, but we had hundreds of delegates. I'll put it that way. or attendees from across the province. Lots of exciting energy. Uh, lots of featuring of our candidates. Tons of excitement. So I feel really good about uh, coming out of the convention with some good momentum. And look, we've only got about six months until the next campaign begins here in Ontario. So there's no time like the present to keep working hard.
0: Funny you mention that. I mean, six months before the campaign starts, although we're already seeing and hearing, you know, election-style ads on radio and TV <laughs> stations. It's yes, it's really sure. early for that.
5: <laughs> well, it is. You look, there's there's some, there are some rules around spending limits that kick in around the beginning of November. So I'm sure uh, that a couple of the parties, the Conservatives and the NDP, wanted to get out there and start spending some money to, to uh, well mostly to attack me for what it's worth and <laughs> by the way that's <laughs> and that's fine like that is the political playbook that every party liberals included have followed for well for generations i you mentioned the ranked ballot commitment that i made at our at our convention i this is one of the reasons that i de- i decided that we should go in a different direction i think people in ontario are just so fed up and tired after 19 months of this pandemic they just they want to see something different they i'd much rather talk about Playing to voters' hopes rather than just trying to take advantage of their fears, which is what the attack ads do. So we're not going to go that way, uh, but the other parties have decided to go that way, and that's their choice.
0: So how will a, and I'll use my words, not yours, how will a ranked ballot system, I guess, remove that political divisiveness, if it can?
5: Well, listen, I think it'll take a little bit of time because it's a completely new way of doing politics and doing doing campaigning. But in essence, it requires politicians like me to compete for voters' second choices as well as their first. And so it won't make a lot of sense for me to stand here all day long and attack my opponents vociferously and viciously if I'm actually hoping that their voters will will choose me second. So when political strategists and leaders and candidates are thinking about how to devise their strategies, the the win at all costs, take no prisoners, over-the-top attacks, will actually be counterproductive and it'll force us to be more creative, more collaborative, which I think is what people want to see right now, especially after COVID. And I think that's a better way to govern. Better way to campaign and a better way to govern.
0: Has has the ranked ballot system worked very well in another part of the country or somewhere else in the world?
5: Well, we saw it work really well right here in Ontario in the twenty eighteen municipal campaign, because we as liberals had changed the laws to at the time to permit municipalities in Ontario to choose that option. The city of London in Ontario did choose did choose that option for 2018. They had an election that went well. They elected their mayor and councillors using a ranked ballot system. And then Doug Ford a few months ago came out and said, we don't need ranked ballots at the municipal level. We're going to remove the option. We're going to get rid of them altogether and go back to the way we've always voted here in this province, which I think was a giant step backward. So we've done it. We've done it right here in Ontario. I think it works well. Not perfect, but I think it does work well, and that's why I want to go in that direction.
0: One of the reasons why the Ford government uh, brought the axe down on the ranked ballot system for municipalities, at least, would be to prevent voter confusion. Uh, I'm not sure how confusing (laughs) it is to rank rank some candidates. I mean, you go through one to five or one to three, whatever the case is, it really isn't that confusing.
5: (laughs) I saw that, I guess, response or talking point from the Ford government. I thought that showed an awful lot of uh, disrespect for Ontario voters. Here's the funny thing for you as well. When Doug Ford won the leadership of his own party, his own party rules use a ranked ballot. Uh, So so do the NDP's internal party rules. Uh, we, we, We liberals nominate our candidates using a ranked ballot. It's funny to me that Doug Ford thinks Conservative Party members are smarter than average Ontario voters. I don't feel that way. I have a ton of faith and confidence in the people of Ontario, and I... I think, you know, telling someone you can, you can put the numbers one through whatever it happens to be next to a bunch of different names on your ballot is a pretty easy thing to understand. And I think it gives people more choice. Here's another thing to keep in mind. It would require that every woman and man elected to the legislature would have to have secured 50% of the, of the votes. Right now, there are a lot of women and men serving in the legislature who, under our current system, don't need 50% plus one to actually win their seat. A ranked ballot would require if you didn't have 50 percent plus one on the first round of counting, you you would need to, again, uh, compete for those second choices and, and therefore get across that threshold. I think it's more Democratic.
0: Stephen, we'll a lot to leave it there. Uh, thanks for joining us today and uh, good luck when uh, the campaign does begin in six months.
5: My pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care.
0: Stephen Del Duca, the leader of the Liberal Party of Ontario, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. You're listening
1: to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Short Supply, the supply chain crisis. Yes, we are understanding everything shortage. This is Short Supply Weekly Series on the supply chain issue. In today's first edition, we're investigating the reasons behind the worsening backlogs and how delays are being passed on to consumers. Erica Eleni is a national online journalist for Money and Consumer Affairs with Global News and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Erica.
6: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for coming on. I think most Canadians are screaming, Holy supply shortage, Batman. Why are supply chains around the world jammed up right now? How, do, how did we get here? So
6: it's, as often is the case, it's a number of factors, but the main one is the pandemic. And particularly the fact that, uh, as we all got uh, stuck at home, we started ordering a lot more, quote-unquote, things. So instead of spending money on services, on the restaurants, movie theaters, going out, concerts, what have you, We we started spending a lot more of our dollars on things like standing bikes for the improvised home gym, uh, you know, patio furniture, uh, electronics, uh, and this has really been a, a, a very big global shift. And it is the main cause of why supply chains have been struggling. We're just buying a lot more stuff. This started in the summer of 2020, and it's still ongoing.
0: Are there other uh, contributing factors to the shortages that we're seeing?
6: Yes, absolutely. So on the other hand, so, you know, when when we started feeling um, a little better about our finances, so obviously there was a lot of concern at the beginning of the pandemic, but by the summer, uh, you know, a lot of consumers started feeling like many of us had kept our jobs, we were financially okay, and we could afford to spend a little bit more, which is why, you know, uh, you started seeing that surge in demand back then. On the other hand, you had um, factories that had been shutting down or drastically uh, scaling back activity. Same thing with a lot of transportation networks. So for us consumers, very easy to say, okay, I, now I can buy. You know, you scroll, click of the mouse, and you place your order, and that's that. It's very fast. Demand came back really quickly. On the other hand, um, factories, transportation networks had to rehire workers, um, do a number of things uh, to ramp up activity that took time, and that created a lag between demand and supply, which is one of the reasons why you're seeing um, shortages. And then things started compounding. So I'll give you the example of containers. So right now, uh, we're in a situation where we're just ordering so much stuff that we don't have enough containers globally to put stuff into to ship them. But earlier in the pandemic, there was also we started off with this problem where um, you had factories in Asia, Asia, um, China in particular, recovered a little bit faster than North America from the pandemic. Like they, they were ramping up activity, still sort of in the depth of the second and third uh, wave, and so they started, you know, putting stuff into shipping containers and shipping them off to North America, and then and Europe, and then a lot of these containers kind of got. Stuck at the wrong end of the supply chain, because ports were still dealing—you know—are still dealing with uh, supply and um, labor shortages, um, and also COVID protocols in particular earlier um, on in the pandemic, and this made made it m- much slower um, for, for containers to be then shipped back to Asia. So. It was also there was you know, now we have a problem which is simply uh quantities, but um there was also a problem of the containers being stuck uh in the wrong place um for a while. And that gives you an idea of the sort of um supply side challenges uh, that have made it even harder to meet this extraordinary surge in demand.
0: Erica Alini is our guest, national online journalist for Money and Consumer Affairs with Global News. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. And of course, us as consumers are feeling the impact of those supply chain woes.
6: Yes, so you have a number of delays compounding, but also costs are compounding. Costs are compounding for producers, and increasingly companies are willing to pass on those extra costs to consumers. Um, So we were just talking about uh, containers. Uh, So container prices have skyrocketed. Um, I've seen increases of 60, 70%. Heard one anecdote of someone who was quoted a price of uh, $2,500 for a container before the pandemic and was just quoted $25,000 for the same type of container to give you an idea. Um, We also have an energy crisis and an energy crunch of the same sort of Supply-demand mismatch that I just described for consumer goods um, is also um, in place for, for energy, uh, especially natural gas. Diesel uh, prices are there's been a surge in demand; supply has struggled to c- catch up, um, so prices are shooting up. This is pushing up the cost of transportation. Um, it's also uh, pushing up the cost of production. Uh, farms and some producers rely heavily on natural gas. So this is all compounding, and uh, producers are facing extraordinary cost increases, and and increasingly we're we're seeing uh, price increases.
0: Last question for you. We only got about a minute left. What are companies, provinces, uh, Transport Canada doing to alleviate the clogged supply chain, and do we see a finish line on the horizon?
6: Uh, yeah, so companies are getting creative. So you're seeing companies like um, IKEA and Walmart, uh, for example, that have started chartering their own vessels to try to get around this um, supply chain problems. problems. Um, Transport Canada, uh, certainly the government is also on the case, which we just heard from uh, Um, Minister Freeland, um, that, you know, they're keeping a close eye on, on supply chains. Um, one of the interesting things I heard is, uh, um, they, uh, they're setting up, um, uh, programs to, to vaccinate personnel on vessels. Um, that was, that's been a really big concern, uh, that it's very difficult, um, to, um, to vaccinate, uh, seafarers. Obviously they're, they're out, uh, for months, uh, at a time. So we now have a, a great program at ports, um, to, to, to try to get crews, uh, vaccinated and make sure that we don't have, um, you know, outbreaks on, on ships, uh, potentially. Uh, and in terms of the finish line, uh, what I've heard is that it will take quite a while for these things to work themselves out. And probably sometime in 2022 is when we'll see the
0: end. All right. So we'll have to hang tight. Erica, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Erica Alini is a national online journalist for money and consumer affairs with Global News. Joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 chml
0: professor at mcmaster university is leading a major international study on ptsd and the impact of COVID 19 on healthcare professionals her name is margaret mckinnon and she's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral neurosciences and the homewood research chair in mental health and trauma and ms mckinnon joins us now on good morning hamilton good morning margaret good morning how are you today good how are you i'm not too bad thanks for joining us how is this study being implemented
7: yeah, so what we're doing right now is we're really trying to better understand the day-to-day experiences and impact of COVID-19 on healthcare workers. We've been interviewing um, healthcare workers across the country, looking to understand their experiences, and also conducting surveys online to get a sense of their mental health and well-being, and factors that may be risk factors um, for the, having a deleterious impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on these these vital
0: workers. I'd imagine they have some pretty uh, pretty scary stories to share.
7: They certainly do, and um, we've gone th- through uh, much of the interview transcripts, and we've identified some of the top stressors that healthcare workers are facing. These include include a feeling that healthcare workers are living in a world apart from others, that it's difficult for others to understand their experiences and what they're going through right now. And That could be, for example, providing care that feels at some point perhaps futile, um, but it's invasive. It's painful, very difficult for the patient receiving it, and it's also very difficult for the healthcare worker who's asked to provide that care.
0: I understand there's two phases to this study. So what does phase two entail?
7: Yeah, so phase two, we're going to continue to have ongoing surveillance of healthcare workers, not just now during the fourth wave of the pandemic, but into the future. So what what will be the lasting impact? On these, these individuals of their work during the pandemic. And we're actually looking not only at healthcare workers, but also at public safety personnel, including um, police, fire, paramedics, dispatchers. It's groups that are also being impacted. And we certainly see that impact, for example, not just in Ontario, but across the country.
0: So, how are they dealing with this? And does this study uh, propose to make any suggestions or recommendations or give healthcare professionals some ideas to tackle PTSD?
7: Yeah, in fact, one um, major aim of the study is to rapidly translate um, our research findings into action. So we're working, for example, on programs that will assist them in dealing with moral injury, which is the sense that someone's been asked to do something that violates their moral moral standards or ethics. Um, we're looking at programs where we can better educate and provide information about ongoing stress and injury, really to equip these workers with tools that could be for self-use, but also for use should they should they require clinical
0: treatment. Does PTSD um, come in different forms, and is it fair to say that some healthcare professionals um, are dealing with it in different ways, and maybe might not even notice that they have it?
7: Yeah, absolutely. So PTSD manifests in various ways, and one is a sense of being very hyper aroused, um, being sort of being ramped up feeling irritable, startling easily. And that's present in about 70% of individuals who experience post-traumatic stress injuries. However, in the remaining 30%, they often very, have very low arousal. They're numbed out. They have difficulty connecting with others. And they may have an inability to experience positive emotions. And we call that the dissociative subtype of PTSD. And That's present in about 30% of individuals with post-traumatic stress injuries, yet often unrecognized, as you say.
0: Yeah, it is very uh, challenging, obviously, uh, during a pandemic for uh, whether you're uh, a nurse or a police officer or whatever the case, if you're on the front lines, it it has not been an easy uh, year in a little bit. Um, When do you hope to wrap up the study and and when can we ultimately see some action?
7: So We we are continuing to collect data now, um, but at the same time, we're rapidly translating the knowledge. So we're working with Homewood Health Center in Guelph right now, Homewood Health Incorporated, to develop clinical programming for health workers and public safety personnel. Um, we've also applied for grant funding that will allow us to continue to develop new programs as well that would be for use for f- prevention and early intervention, so prior to when somebody um, requires, for example, outpatient or inpatient mental health treatment.
0: Margaret, best of luck with this. This is an important uh, avenue to go down and help. It's going to help a lot of people, I know that. Thank you very much for the time today.
7: Well, thank you to the healthcare workers and public safety personnel for their incredible service and just recognizing the enormous impact this has had on them and on their families and really respecting and honoring that. So, thank you very much for talking about this this morning.
0: Well said. Thanks, Margaret. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you later. Margaret McKinnon is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral neurosciences in the Homeward Research Chair in Mental Health and Trauma.
1: Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5 30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
0: The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple podcast, Google podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget 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 to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.